the reason why I ended up getting help was, you know, when my little daughter told me as we were playing a board game, you don't smile anymore. And it just hit me. I, I think I broke down. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Welcome to another educational episode of Stigma-Free Vet Zone. We are here in our studio overlooking the peaceful Milwaukee River, and we're going to head down to the VA hospital in Milwaukee to catch up with Dr. Kenneth Lee, a veteran, doctor, husband, and proud father of two children. Dr. Lee is also a native of South Korea. He was deployed to Iraq as the company commander of the Army's Army's Company B, 118th Area Support Medical Battalion, but was injured in 2004 by a suicide car bomber. Suffering an open head traumatic brain injury and severe shrapnel wounds to his legs, he was evacuated back home and diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. There is much more to Dr. Lee's achievements to include receiving the 2017 Outstanding Disabled American Veterans Award, so let's drop in uh, and welcome Dr. Kenneth Lee. Good morning, doctor. Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me here. Oh, it, it is our honor. Believe me, it's our honor. Let's get right to it and, and start out. Tell us a little bit. Um, the, the bio says that you are a native of South Korea. I'm assuming that you become an American citizen when you enter the military. But tell us a little bit about Dr. Lee, background, when you were a child, where are you from, all that sort of thing. Sure. Uh, I was born in uh, Chuncheon, uh, South Korea, and when my parents uh, immigrated here, I came with them in 1975, uh, and we settled in um, uh, Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I, I grew up there. That's uh, my memory of childhood there. Um, I went through high school, college, and, you know, typical American uh, dream kind of uh, uh, picture. Uh, and while I was in uh, undergrad, um, I joined the ROTC, was going through uh, their training, uh, but a recruiter for National Guard came around and uh, basically uh, sold me on joining them instead of going to continue with the ROTC. So during the sophomore year of my um, college year, I joined the uh, National Guard as a combat medic. And that's how my uh, military started. But prior to that, my actually dad told me to... Um, uh, join something, some civil uh, duty, uh, because uh, he wasn't paying for any tuition, so he was wondering why, how I was actually paying for college, <laughs> and I told him I was getting grants and uh, scholarships, and so he, he said, then you need to pay back and join something, and that's actually how it started, joining the military. Great. Uh, how about brothers, sisters, a little pet dog, music, sports? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, in, I'm the middle child. I have an older sister and a younger sister. Um, and older sister is a nurse, um, and the younger sister is actually a, a principal at a, a school system down in Florida. Uh, and uh, they've been very supportive in all my military adventures uh, that I had, even, even after uh, I came back from the Iraq War. Was your father in the military? Does he have a military background? He does. He was a career military uh, uh, individual. Uh, he went through what in South Korea, the same thing as uh, West, uh, West Point uh, through the Rock Army. Uh, he, was, uh, he retired as a lieutenant colonel. He's a Vietnam War veteran. He was injured. He was shot in uh, Vietnam. He lost many of his um, uh, friends and buddies during the Vietnam War as well. Um, I never knew him to have any type of PTSD. 
Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm not even sure if uh, in, in South Korea whether they recognized that at back then. Uh, but he seemed to be well-adjusted individual. Um, but he was able to talk to me a lot about um, post-war after I came back. Uh, and I found out a lot about him, and I learned a lot from him as well, something we should talk about later on. I would like to. What a great resource. Uh, and, and just as a point of history, when I was in Vietnam, I was an infantry soldier. The ROC, uh, ROK, Republic of Korean Army, was very highly respected by all sides, by all militaries there, probably Top of the list is one of the most respected, uh, I, would, uh, I don't want to say this in public, but I will, fearsome <laughs> military in <laughs> Vietnam at the time. Yeah, that's, <laughs> really that was. coincides with what my father said as well. <laughs> Even the Viet Congs didn't like them in terms of um, uh, messing mean, with them. <laughs> it was search and avoid if you came across the Rock Army. <laughs> so, okay, so, so then we can include that certainly in the conversation. I think that's extremely valuable information, Dr. Lee. So now you've made a decision to, enter the military and your family standing behind that decision. And what are your expectations when you actually are activated into uh, military service? You've completed school. Well, you know, it was kind of, um, you know, I thought I would never go to war. I mean, this was uh, for college uh, funds, um, you know, pay for my college um, and uh, med school perhaps, and then um, uh, do my, um, sir, you know, minimum time in and then kind of get out and satisfy my dad's wishes of uh, serving. Um, but it turned out got, that it fit me really well. The military fit me really well. And uh, I, I really delved into all the training that was um, available to me, uh, not just as a physician, but as a soldier. So I really enjoyed it. So uh, many of the um, military personnel thought I was a unique individual doctor that just didn't conform to the typical doctor-soldier kind of model. Um, so when I was called up, I was actually quite surprised, but I actually was expecting it as well um, because of the war that was going on. There's no way that I will be exempt when so many people are getting called up and going. Um, so in 2003, late 2003, when I was called up, I was ready. Um, and I felt good, and I felt um, that our soldiers were ready as well because we trained hard. Um, everybody thinks the National Guards, you know, they, we mess around and stuff. But during the uh, weekends, I mean, they train really hard. Uh, and once we did get activated and went to Iraq, we were all scared. I mean, obviously, none of us went, except my first sergeant was a Vietnam veteran, actually. Um, so he was the most experienced from a war standpoint. So he guided us pretty well. Um, and uh, with that, you know, we went to war um, and never expected that I would get injured. But it is what it is. Uh, let me, let's just go back a, a couple of years, though. You, you, you've got 9-11 comes up. What was the influence and how did that influence your belief in the mission, your um, patriotism, honor of leaving the country and going off to Iraq? And, and was your family there in, in, in support of this whole mission of you uh, leaving for Iraq? So when 9-11 happened, I was in medical school and um, it really hit me pretty hard. And I, I, you know, I remember studying hard, but leaving the TV on constantly to listen to the news and all that. Uh, obviously, my mother called and was very worried that I, I would go, you know, um, and he, I remember the comment that, you know, we kind of escaped uh, from South Korea mandatory uh, military service and finally got to U.S. and you voluntarily join, you know. <laughs> I have an idiot for a son. <laughs> That's what I remember her saying that, <laughs> you know. A mother's love. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, That's good. Uh, um, I did actually... Um, called and volunteered to delay my education and, and, uh, and get deployed. I was a first lieutenant back then. Uh, um, but they said because I was a medical student and don't really have a qualification in the military except for a com being a combat medic, um, they, they didn't decide not to take me uh, or take my offer. Um, so um, to me, the 9-11 really sealed I guess my patriotism, if, um, if I didn't have it back then, that really sealed it because uh, something moved me. Um, and I wanted to actually go to war, follow some of the soldiers that were out there. Uh, it just didn't happen. It, it took many years later for me to uh, get deployed. So now as a combat medical, let me ask you one more question, Doc, before we actually take off for Iraq. Do you feel an obligation, as many medics do, that your responsibility to take care of these men that are with you uh, physically. And, and uh, it, 
with, with any injuries that might come up, you are there and you are going to do everything you possibly can to keep them alive. Uh, yeah, I, answer to that is yes. And I'm speaking for all the combat medics, whether you're an uh, Army, uh, uh, you know, corpsman and medic or the, um, those um, medics in the uh, uh, Air Force or any, any type of medical personnel. Um, the training that we receive is quite uh, auto- autonomized in a way. Uh, we, we train so we don't think about it and we move fast, right? You can't be thinking of what should I do next uh, on a bleeding soldier. Um, so everything's really repetitive and learn really quick. And I really noticed that um, during one of the events uh, where we were out in the open and we were treating um, uh, casualties in Iraq. And when we saw mortars come in and, and hit the ground, automatically all the medics jumped on top of their patients. They're, they weren't even thinking. And then as soon as dust cleared, they came back up and just started treating things. It was just a natural thing. And when I saw that, it, it was a beautiful scene. I wish, actually, I'm getting chills right now talking about it, but it just showed how much dedicated these medics are. You know, they, they don't really think about their own uh, safety, um, but their patient safety, they thought of right away instinctively. And it, it's, I, I wish it was, uh, you know, videotaped to show everyone. That's why I had to bring it up, because the, the other thing that was really uh, extraordinary for me in Vietnam was what they were called on to do in the dirt, in the dust, in the rain, uh, in the filth that many doctors would have a difficult time doing in a modern surgical hospital. And a lot of these medics are 18, 19, 20 years old. Uh, just extraordinary what they were called on to do. Major surgery uh, in a dust oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I I agree. They're amazing people, amazing people. So we move on. You're, you're now in Iraq. Take us there and take us up through this uh, event that, that changed your life. Yeah, um, we learned really quickly that we need to adapt, uh, you know, uh, adapt and, and move on, uh, you know, this, whether it's supply issues or whether your support element's going to be there when you uh, go outside the wire and, and do your missions. You know, uh, we are very soft targets, so we are expecting to have um, uh, some support from MPs or infantry to support us as we go do our medical missions. But, you know, war is war. You don't have those assets when things go uh, fall apart or things don't go the way you want. And majority of the time, we did not have any uh, support like that. So we adapted and made, uh, you know, our, our, our soft canvas Humvees, turned them into as uh, armored as we can. We learn how to move three-vehicle tactics. Um, We just identified a few special forces groups, and they taught us how to move in three-vehicle, five-vehicle, and just pretty much learned on our own uh, besides uh, the normal things that we learned uh, as well. And so with that kind of training, we were able to carry out a lot of missions, and we did get a lot of missions. Um, we, We were outside the gate, probably about three, four times a week. Um, and all the medics, um, uh, and when I, you know, when I say medics for our unit, I want to include everyone. That includes the RTO, the radio technicians, the cooks, the mechanics, the administrative personnel, the, it's a secretarial type of personnel. Those people just jumped in. When we needed help, they jumped in. I, we even have pictures of our um administrative personnel doing sutures because <laughs> we needed people to do those things and medics actually doing some i mean i'm sorry the cooks actually doing some triage holding bandages because they all jumped in um one other thing that i did prior to leaving iraq uh, as part of our normal training was that all our staff or all our members in in my unit uh be bls certified basically cpr certified um, so they can at least do CPR on anybody, uh, whether you're a cook or mechanic, they all had to be one. Uh, and that came in handy uh, during, during the wartime. So we did a lot of missions while we were there. Uh, we were scared, um, but, you know, at one point, all our missions kind of caught up to us. And then one day, it was um, September 10th, um, 2004, 
when our convoy was attacked, uh, we, we were in a um, three-vehicle convoy, uh, was hit hard when we had to stop at a roadblock, uh, but that was the chance for the insurgents to actually hit us pretty hard. Our ve- one of our vehicles severely burnt down, uh, and then there was actually, out of the nine, nine of us that we run, three, three personnel each vehicle, there's uh, six of us that was uh, injured, three of us were severely injured. And we, three of us could not go back to uh, duty. That included me. So when you are in these um, um, attacks, you're, you're, you're injured. Uh, do you have helico- helicopter support, dust offs? Do you have medevacs? Or how, how do they get you from where you are injured as quickly back to a medical uh, station, hospital, um, mass unit? Uh, how are you transported back? Yeah, so there's obvious ground ambulance units that move us around, but there was also a medevac. Uh, I mean, I can just recall, these are not my memories from from pictures that I can figure out, um, that I was actually moved uh, through um, a medevac helicopter. And I can say I vaguely remember waking up, but... Um, being on a helicopter, but that could be from a movie. I, I don't know. Uh, you know, the first thing that I do remember was being in a uh, in a trauma center and somebody working over me. But I was going in and out, so I, I can't even picture what that was. The only thing I I know is that afterwards uh, they moved me to um, uh, uh, the Baghdad uh, hospital there. Um, uh, waking up with bandages everywhere and, and then uh, someone telling me that I, there, there's no way they can complete all my surgeries here, that I need to go to Landstuhl, Germany. Uh, that kind of, I kind of remember because one thing I asked was, well, can I come back? And, and they didn't answer that at all. Uh, and that, that actually was pretty depressing, knowing that there's a chance I couldn't come back. From what I've heard from other uh soldiers who served in Iraq, once they say launch duel, you know that you're serious. That, that is the, the, the first evacuation station. Rather than sending back to the United States, you go to Germany to get quick help right there. Correct. You know, if you were able to stay in uh, Balad and get, get the treatments done, that would be great. But when uh, I got to Balad, they said, no, they're going to transfer me out. And that, that was the last draw saying, okay, there's a chance I'm not coming back. But even in Germany, I tried everything that I can come back. Uh, but, uh, you know, after batteries of tests, they, they just said that I'm not up to par to go back, especially to take command. So it was hard. But there must have also been the, the inquisition of, of your friends who were injured. You said that there were six of you who were injured. So now you don't know where they are, how they're doing, especially if you're in command. Don't you have an unusual sense of taking care of the men that are, that are under your command? and uh, finding out how they are. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. Uh, you know, as a commander, um, and I, I can never shake this off, is that I failed my mission. Uh, I, I remember distinctly telling all the family members that I will bring everybody back, you know. Uh, luckily, everybody did come back, but I didn't bring them back. Uh, so I have a tremendous guilt and a sense of failure from that. And uh, I can never shake that no matter what type of therapy or uh, who tells me what, you know, what, what kind of status I have as a physician here in the VA. It, it doesn't matter. I can never shake that. And I, I still have that, uh, that feeling that, you know, I, I failed my mission. Uh, it's, yeah, it just brings back memories. What an extraordinary reaction to war, that, that it just will not go away, that responsibility, not to yourself, but to the men who are under your command. That's just remarkable. So let's continue on. You, you have gone off to Germany, and now take us, continue on with this journey that, that you have been on. Yeah, so when they finally moved to Germany, um, uh, I remember that uh, phone calls with my kids and my, um, uh, my wife, um, uh, I remember my daughter's uh, first phone conversation with me. She was really upset at me for being injured because uh, she really thought that as a physician in the Army, I'm going there to treat uh, the soldiers and also the people in Iraq. Uh, but the picture just pretty much got shattered when she knew I was injured. So she thought I was out there fighting just like in the war movies. My son, on the other hand, was quite excited that, uh, you know, I survived the war and couldn't wait to hear everything. <laughs> and then 
my wife was just totally upset. <laughs> well, well, we have to stop here just for a second, Doc, Dr. Lee. I was, I, I was under the assumption, I'm listening to your story, and I'm picturing you as someone just out of college. You never mentioned you were married with two children when you went there. So, oh. so, so we will have to ca- catch up on their story as well, because these are the people who are back at home. You know where you are the entire time. These are, these are the family who are at home, and only in their imagination do they know if you're okay, if you're not okay, where you are. And it's a whole different set of worry and and concern for their soldier who is off at war and now they've they've gotten the message but they must have been ecstatic that you were alive yeah mike i think that's a good point uh, they're definitely ecstatic but angry at the same time uh you know that you're injured too um I think it's it's a great point to uh, say that, um, you know, we all know those who, who've been to war. Um, you have that heightened time where you're in danger. You need to protect yourself. You need to fight or, you know, do other things as you do your mission. But there's a lot of downtime where you are safe, where you're, you know, you're enjoying a movie or you're doing things that um, – that you know you're safe. But back at home, my wife thought I was in danger 24 7, you know, 365 days a year. She, she, you know, when I saw her, she was just skin and bones. She couldn't eat. She was just worried all the time. And I remember my mother in law telling me what happened, my mother telling me what my wife Kate went through the whole time. It never clicked on me that. You know, while I'm playing video games with fellow soldiers, relaxing because we didn't have any mission, um, my wife is thinking that I'm in constant danger. Um, so it's important to recognize that, you know, the, the casualty here is a lot. It's not just me. It's uh, my family as well, you know, and it affected my daughter quite a bit. Do you think that that heightened anxiety, that heightened concern while you're playing video games and they're wondering if you're safe— 24 hours a day, as you said, you know, for the entire time that you're away, do you think that's a little bit of the basis for the anger that now they oh, find yeah. out you're okay and <laughs> here's all this worry goes off, but it's, it's not angry at you, it's anger at the situation, a- anger at the release of all this tension that's been building up and the fear. And I believe, truly believe that it is, um, you know, it has to come out somehow, you know, it has to be released somehow. And sometimes it comes at you. Because you're the only one standing there uh, with with the, your spouse or individual that you care for that worried about you, and I, I realized quickly. Actually, no, I not quickly. I realized um, late in the game that instead of fighting with her, I needed to understand where she was, what she was doing while I was out in Iraq, um, and that made some changes. It's a very powerful statement because a lot of us go off to war. Many who I've talked to, including myself, I'm the veteran. I'm the soldier. I know where I am. I'm the one in danger. I'm at war. It's me. It's me. It's me. It's I. I'm the one who's angry. I'm the one who suffered this. I'm the one who saw that. And, and even after coming home, there can be a lot of that. I saw this. I did this. Without even recognizing that our families had been through a completely different set of traumatizing experiences. Yeah, and I think that tra- traverses all war, whether it's World War One, Two, you know, the Vietnam, Korean War, even the modern war. Every veterans that I've talked to say the similar thing. It, it's not really the um, the war itself. It's about I, me, thinking as a veteran. And in so many ways, when I did think that way, I could not. Um, uh, kind of get away from this little uh, problem I had about reintegrating back home. Uh, Once I recognized that it's not just me, it affected so many people, especially my wife, things started turning around a little bit. Is it 100% all good? (laughs) It's not because, you know, there are some things that just keeps popping up and kind of you blow up. And it's the important thing is after you blow up, you got to recollect yourself and rethink again, you know, uh, set your baseline again and, and, and reapproach. you know. If you don't do that, you just keep ending up into a little hole. You have to resolve issues. But l- let me ask you two things. W- one with your wife, and, and this is one that just stands out for me with, with mothers, with wives, with the families at home, was that fear of a car pulling up in front of their house. One woman said, every time a car pulled up and stopped in front of my house, I thought it was somebody coming to tell me bad news. 
Uh, and, and I can't imagine what that's like because a lot of cars pull up in front of my house all the time. So I imagine that constant threat in your head, a car pulls up in front of your house and, and you think that uh, this may be the, the message that I was hoping would never come. Um, the other thing is when you come home, when you were expecting to go home after your injury and you were going home, did you expect to have the reactions you were having? Um, you know, honest truth, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, I do know I came home by myself. Um, uh, nobody knew who I was when I was on the plane. Uh, you know, I was just plain clothes. Um, and my legs were bandaged, but I l- wore long clothes, and my arms were all bandaged up, but I wore a long sleeve and a coat. And then I landed at Mitchell Airport. Uh, just walked out, limped around, and then um, I didn't even tell my wife. I mean, I actually forgot to tell my wife I'm coming home because uh, it was one of those decisions. Hey, I want to go home now, and they let me go. Um, and when I came home, um, you know, last minute, I said, hey, I'm coming home today. And my wife just had to finagle her work really quick and just come pick me up. Uh, and then we came home. Um, so there was no real... Like the kids weren't prepared or anything like that. So just just got home and it was kind of mundane. All I remember is that home looked very different. It felt really different. I, I felt like I'm moving into a new house uh, and nothing seemed like I left, you know. Even though the house is the same, nothing seemed like uh, normal to me. And I, I can't tell you what it was. It just didn't feel right. Oh, no, that's the wrong word. It, it felt right to be home. It just didn't feel like home. <laughs> Let me ask you some of the reactions that some of us had. One was nothing was funny anymore. Uh, there was a, an intimate intimacy that was lacking. I'm not talking about physical intimacy, but an intimacy with our families that it, it was more like a psychological isolation. They were there, we were there, but we didn't know how to explain where we were. Uh, didn't understand why we were having reactions, nightmares, whatever they might be. But there, were, there was just a distance between us and our families, uh, like a joy was gone or a sadness had to come in. And I wonder if you experienced anything like that. Uh, I guess two things. Um, you know, this is something I, I think everybody will be familiar with, whether you're the uh, military personnel or the family members close to you. You know, the common word that came out of my mouth to my kids and my family, especially my wife, was, you know, you don't know anything. You, you don't know what happened over there. You don't know what I saw. Um, I think those kind of similar words were just common kind of things that came out of us. Um, and it's unfortunate because, yes, they, you know, they haven't, uh, they don't know what we went over, through over there, but we also don't know what, what they went through here, and we had to come to a common ground. But like you said before, we're just about me, me, me. I'm the veteran. You know, I'm the one that's important. That kind of attitude, um, and that, that I think, uh, continued the gap. Now, we think the adults are the only ones that we're dealing with and fighting, but, you know, one year into this, uh, the reason why I ended up getting help was you know, when my little daughter uh, just told me at one point that you don't smile anymore. And it just hit me. I, I, I didn't realize that. You know, and she just mentioned that uh, out of the blue and uh, as we were playing a board game. And it just, I think I broke down, if I remember correctly. Because uh, everything was just inside me, uh, frustration. And then, you know, a little girl telling you that it's kind of sad, you know, when little girl's daddies don't smile and just keeps getting angry all the time. But, but was it something that startled you to attention because you weren't aware that anybody saw this or that you were going through this or that that was the demeanor that your family was seeing or that's what you're bringing into the house? But that awareness had to be enlightening. Um. I would say instead of enlightening, it was a realization of the destruction I'm, I'm causing. Um, that hurt more than, than actually destruction of me myself, that I'm causing destruction that's around me, whether it's physical destruction of the materialistic things like their games that I'm breaking or, you know, vice that I threw or something. But, you know, when your little kids are getting affected by that and they're afraid to come near you, that's one thing, right? And then when your wife 
who's so dedicated to you no matter what um, is not talking to you anymore or uh, is thinking of leaving you, you know, that those kind of things just start coming in. But it really doesn't hit you until one incident tells you to wake up. And for me, it was my daughter telling me I, I didn't smile. I mean, it, it's just one, several words. I mean, playing a game, I could have just said, you know, yelled at her or something. But instead, those words just kind of hit me really hard. And for different veterans, it could be different things. One of the things that a lot of us go through, and we're, one of the reasons we do the podcast, is trying to change that attitude of, the primary health care is not the veteran. The primary health care focus is the, should be the family. And how do we get the veterans to be aware that no matter what they're struggling with, there still have to, has to be the concern for what they are doing to the atmosphere inside of a house, to the health, uh, the mental health and the physical health of their families. But yet when we come home, we're, we're just not aware that we're doing the damage. It's not like we're intentionally trying to do this. We're not even aware that we're doing it ourselves uh, because the, it, there was this overwhelming sense of unresolved um, experiences in our heads. And it, it, like our minds are continually trying to resolve those things and physically getting older, but mentally just locked at that time of war a little bit. And that, that waking up to your daughter had to be just uh, a, a very memorable occasion for you today that this is the oh. turning point that said, yes, I'm going to get help. And I mean, I mean, I'm guessing that you look at her today and with a whole different sense of thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I, I do because she really turned me around. Um, I don't think she realized that she's in medical school now. So, um, you know, I, I hope she'll be able to take care of veterans uh, appropriately in, in the future. Um, but, you know, the way I explain it to other veterans, I have a lot of veterans come and talk to me here. Some of them I don't know, but they're struggling, so they just want to chit-chat and talk because they found out who I was or uh, what, what I went through. Um, the way I explain, and I do this during my lecture series, is that we, we as a soldiers or veterans, uh, you know, those that are injured, you know, they all say, you're the casualty, you're the injured one. And I always say, no, I am not a casualty. You know, I'm actually a product of this war. You know, Mike, you're a product of a Vietnam War, all right? People are supposed to take care of us. Government will take care of us. That's why there's a VA hospital. That's why there's veteran services. You know, that's why there's comp and pension system. You know, it's all in there for me. I, I am the product, so let's deal with that, all right? And then, then people say casualty is then... Oh, it's got to be the people in Iraq who got injured. No, those are collateral damage. Somehow somebody needs to take care of them, whether it's Iraq or U.S., whatever it is. But those are collateral damage. Don't get that confused with the casualties of war. And I just say, lay it out. True casualties of war are my wife, my kids, my mom, and everyone else that was affected. Those are casualties of war. So if we keep that definition focused on them, and as a product of war, we put that together, take care of the product, take care of the casualties, then we're going to have something good come out of that. And that's how I explain it. And a lot of, I think some of the vets realize, oh, so my wife is the casualty. Yes. Or my girlfriend is the casualty. Or my husband is the casualty. Yes. Think of it that way. Then you know you both need the treatment. This is very, very powerful. I'm, I'm tempted to ask you to repeat this because that's such a powerful message. But it also explains why your wife is no longer openly speaking with you all that much or all that friendly with you and trying to avoid you and why marriages come into trouble because of this little bit of insight that you're sharing. Say it one more time, Doc, the part about the family, because that's so important, being the casualty. Sure. Um Everyone needs to remember, we, the veterans, were a product of war, no matter what war you, you were at. Um, the collateral damages are the people that were involved outside of the war um, in whatever area you were at. But the true casualties of war is your family members. They suffered while you were there. They worried. In 24-7, they worried about you. When you come home, they're dealing with you. And then we're continuously cause the uh, casualty uh, scenario because you're fighting with them because you think 
or I'm thinking I'm the casualty. But I had to realize she is the casualty. And she's constantly getting injured with us fighting. All right. And so I think it's important for everyone to realize that instead of saying me, 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 I, 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 the veteran important focus here, um, that the important focus is to uh, take care of the casualty, right? Whether you like it or not, you created the casualty by going to war. It wasn't your choice, but it was um, casualty created. So like any other casualties that we take care of, no matter where you are, let's take care of your own immediate casualty. That's your family member. I, I couldn't agree with you more, uh, Dr. Lee. And, and I would say it's really a responsibility. But a lot of us simply aren't aware of that responsibility. But once we hear that, once that just crosses into our, the gray matter of our brain and wakes us up as your little daughter did when she said, Dad, you just don't smile anymore. You realize that responsibility, and it's not just the physical damage we're doing, but the psychological damage that we do just the, to, to our family members and just to the atmosphere inside of a house. They're not happy. They're nervous. They're afraid to, to be at home where the center of the family and the home should be the place that we are making the most secure and happy for them. That's correct. You know, uh, especially as a father and a husband, you know, you're committed to being a nurturing uh, father. You're committed to being dedicated husband and be the um, person taking care of the family. You can definitely do that despite what your injuries were, whether it's mental or physical, as long as you recognize that you have casualties to take care of. Fascinating. At the beginning, when we spoke of uh, your dad, you said we need to catch up with that later. Did did your father enlighten you with this information or about the family, or did you just come across it on your own uh, insight? Was there a significant moment that struck you? Yeah, um, you know, we had a seven-hour drive, just him and I. We were going to my um, nephew's um, graduation, um, so his grandchild's um, uh, first uh, college graduation. And as we were driving seven hours, um, he talked to me about stuff that I've never heard him say um, about the Vietnam War time that he had. Um, and then I talked to him about, you know, uh, you know, I struggled. And then I asked him how he dealt with it. Um, and he told me that it's a cultural difference in, in Korea. Um, you know, you don't show... Um, whether it's PTSD, depression, you don't show that. You just move forward. You just go to work. You just kind of go. But does the feeling go away? He goes, no, he had to deal with the guilt of his comrades being uh, killed while he was out there. He had to deal with uh, his own injuries. Um, but being an officer in, in, in the South Korean unit, he just uh, could not show anything uh, outside of that. It wasn't an accepted part. So he said he drank quite a bit. Um, he didn't become non-functional, uh, but every night he said he drank, and that was the best way to deal with it. And most Koreans ended up doing that. Um, but luckily, I think uh, things have changed now. But back then, he says all he did was just hang around with his army buddies, and the only thing they did was go drink. Or does that sound familiar to many of us? Yeah, 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 I hear you. I'm not that far <laughs> away from it. But you, you've done, you've had so many achievements. And one of the things I'd like to, to uh, shift to, if we can, Dr. Lee, is what you are doing now, what your children are doing now, and, and how proud you are of both your son and your daughter for where they are. And that has to have some reflection on, on the kiss on the cheek that made you start smiling again and what that means to you, where they're going, and also the work you're doing now as, I may have the title wrong, director of the Spinal Cord Injury Hospital at the VA Hospital in Milwaukee, and your love of sports and how sports are helping you uh, with, uh, w- with our injured spinal cord injury veterans, if you want to touch on those things, because I think it's just so important. Uh, but also, how important is that to you to take what was your internal struggle and change it into something that's making the world and the human spirit a better place. Um, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, you know, as I recovered, you know, you go, you talk to the psychiatrist, psychologist, you, you get the treatment that you need. Uh, and let's focus on PTSD. Um, for me, you know, as a physician to have that stigma, to have that diagnosis was embarrassing. And I really didn't want that. 
but you can't avoid it. It, it. it will come out in so many different forms. And the main thing is that you're hurting your loved ones. But once you recognize you have that, one of the most important comment that was made by a psychologist that was treating me was said, Ken, it's treatable. Don't ever think PTSD is not treatable. All right. Going through some therapy, I also realized I have to put my stake in this as well in the game. I can't just rely on a therapist and say, you know, follow what he or she tells me to do. So what is my stake? And I realized, you know what? I need to find something that's positive in my life away from my family and decide that I'm going to pursue this. Something positive that's going to uplift me, that's going to get me out of the hole whenever I go back in there. And then one of the things that really interested me that got me into spinal cord injury as, as a medical field was the wheelchair game um, by the VA. That really took me my interest in, in the field that I wanted to go into. And so why not take that on as, a, as my personal goal? And so I delved into it and I spent 110% of my life into that. Now, that caused more stress at home too. If you think about it, you're, all you're thinking about is this goal um, but, you know, despite the family struggle with that, um, I made that my goal uh, so I can get out of this rut. Um, and it really helped me. And, and then being with the other veterans who are injured, who, who can appreciate um, what I'm doing, I guess, uh, it made me feel better. It took many years to mend my family again because I'm, I was starting to neglect them again to concentrate on that. Is there a fine balance between, you know, doing what I decided to do with the adaptive sports and, and, um, and the family? I'm sure there is, but I didn't go look for it that way. I decided fully head on and take care of this area so I can take care of my family. Um, but, you know, you have to take the consequence of your actions, and my action did hurt. You know, I thought we were on the men's with the family uh, for a while, but then when I concentrated on adaptive sports, it actually hurt my family quite a bit as well. So now we're back on the mending uh, phase again. Uh, everything looks hunky-dory great, but it really gets tough when, when, um, when you're dealing with um, people with PTSD uh, who's really trying to, um, some are just trying to just stay above water, Right. And but some are really trying to get out of the water and 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 be unsure. Um, and I've done that. Uh, the problem is, you know, I, I hurt my family again uh, by dedicating to that. Um, so I, my recommendation is, yes, find something and go really at it. But include your family at the same time. I excluded my family for a while, but now they're getting included in it. So they're starting to understand why I was so devoted to it for a while. Um, but do it from the get-go. Don't leave your family out. Do, do it together, I guess. Uh, that would be the right word. So it would really be have honest conver conversations with your family about what's really happening, what, what the truth is, and not as many of us uh, tried to do. And that was develop a facade that uh, we would show to the family that everything's okay and, you know, leave me alone, don't bother me, and I'll take care of it and that sort of thing. But let people in. When we build that facade – they're no longer connected to us intimately on what's going on inside. We, we keep that closed to them because we don't really, it's not resolved for ourselves. It's still an issue for us what's going on deep in our souls. So we don't want people in there because it's too dark or it's too angry or it's too uh, uh, unfriendly. But, but the truth is, don't be afraid of that. And, and I'm so glad you mentioned the stigma because I would like to ask you this, Dr. Lee. Could you have gone to war, seen what you have seen, and come home and not had some kind of reaction that would have been stunning to you or startling or difficult to deal with. I, I don't know how we see these things that we do at war, that we see at war, what human beings do to each other, and come back and say, oh, that was a lot of fun. I want to do that again. I, that, I would watch out for a stigma there because that would have to be some sort of insanity. But could you really go back to war and see what you've seen and come home and for the first time and not have those reactions? Uh, Aren't the stigmas kind of foolish? Um, I agree with you. There, uh, you know, if I get called up again and go, um, I told my wife in a heartbeat I'll go. You know, it's part of my duty I'll go. Uh, would I come back as the same person? Definitely not. The things that we see, things that, 
you know, like even in TV shows, you know, some of the shows that are so grotesque that how could a human being do such thing, right? It, and it could be based on true story or whatever. But if you're physically involved in seeing it, it's really hard to um, kind of not forget about it. You, you're gonna, it's going to be part of you, you know. It's going to be part of your mold as you come back home and, and live your life. But one thing that I realized whether it's going to be PTSD or not, it's not a stigma anymore. To me, I can't accept PTSD as a stigma and I'm stuck in it. You know, I, I'm going to refuse that. If somebody tells me you have PTSD uh, and you're going to be like this, I'm just going to tell them you're wrong. Yeah, I got PTSD. I'm going to treat this thing. I'm going to fight it. I may lose, but I'm going to win as well. You know, it's going to be a constant battle, but I'm not going to uh, let it ruin me. Again, it did once for a year, but I'm not going to let it um, because, you know, it, it, it's a constant reminder when you get angry for no reason, when things could have worked out and discussed it with your kids and your wife, uh, but you get an angry outburst. To me, I blame PTSD, but I'm not going to let it ruin me, you know. Uh, I, I think that's a uh, key factor for me. Um, before I was worried about the stigma, before I was worried about what it can do to me, the stigma could do to me. But I don't worry about that anymore. I don't consider it as a stigma. It's a condition that I have, and I'm going to deal with it whenever it comes uh, on. Would it make sense to you, Dr. Lee, to think of it as when you come home, the PTSD, as you're referring to it, controls you? And the, the, the victory is not to get rid of the PTSD, but to take control of it so that you're in control of it and it's not in control of you. It, it, does that make sense to you? That's absolutely correct. I mean, there's no way I think I can get rid of it. It's just a linger. It's just part of my life now. It's part of my mold since the war. Um, and me trying to get rid of it uh, will be foolish. You know, I accept it. And I just got to control it, you know. Any trigger that comes on, I can't stop the triggers from happening, you know, like a tire being blown up and stuff that gets you all heart rate going. And whether you have a flashback or not, many times you can't control those. But what you can control is how you react afterwards. Um, and I think that's where a lot of us are having problems with. It's not that they couldn't identify it or they know what happened. It's just that... What do you do after that happened? You know, are you going to go bursting and, and be a violent person or angry person? Or you're just going to have a quick anger about it for five seconds and then calm down and do something that's more positive? I, I think that that's the key to this um, instead of fighting it. One of the things that helped me, uh, Dr. Lee, was... With the startle responses, you know, why is this happening? Uh, why am I uh, walking around the, the house every night making sure the doors and windows are locked? And, you know, that sort of thing, you know, walking the perimeter, um, the, the, the noises that startle me. I got to the point where I actually stopped and, and, and started saying thank you for that because it's something that kept me alive at one time. Did it turn off now? No, it didn't. I still do it, but I still, when it happens, I say thank you because at one time these reactions kept me alive. And, and so being thankful for them is, is a, as opposed to being angry at them. What's the matter with me? Why is this happening? Uh, being grateful and being thankful have, have really helped me a lot. And maybe it's kind of foolish that I do that, but uh, I, I think there are ways of coming to, to, um, to grips with the fact that these are common responses and when they're common responses, they were there for a reason that they don't shut down. Um, well, they don't shut down. So I'll, I'll just accept them as part of the experience. Yeah, and it's important for us to really, or and anyone else to recognize that, you know, this is our new norm for me. You know, I'm going to have these startle responses. These are things that are going to bother me. But that's, that's my new Ken, you know, post-war Ken. And as long as I accept it, and I know what to do with it afterwards. You know, it's, I don't tell people, you know, that's an abnormal response. No, that's a normal response because you have a PTSD. Okay. So what are you going to do about it? Oh, oh, should I go slap some, kick a dog or something? No, you know that's not the right thing to do. So what would you do? You know, maybe I'll go eat a pie. Okay, you're going to gain weight, but go ahead and eat a pie. Yeah. You know, right. <laughs> something like that. I, I don't want to make light of it, but it is uh, what you do after that response 
that will define you. I agree with you 100%. It's not the response. It's, it's how you react to them. So, so now with, with the spinal cord injury, again, reading your biography and, and some of the articles that um, have been written about you, Dr. Lee, the, the, you use sports in this, and you're very big on sports, but that, I think when we're talking about sports, we're also talking about exercise. We're also talking about diet. We're talking about health, healthful things that you are teaching your patients and the people in the spinal cord injury to maintain uh, healthy lives. Besides just fighting the PTSD, what can we do with our lives daily in in physical way, in exercise, in meditation, whatever there might be that makes these uh, – a lot of times people say, well, you know, do yoga, uh, go jogging, go for a walk. Uh, you know, these are what healthy people do. I mean, so, I mean, why, why shouldn't we include that in something that is part of our uh, um, reaction to war or part of our um, uh, restoration to the civilian life, I guess you would say? <laughs> sure. Uh, first of all, um, from a diet standpoint, I'm not a good person. I eat everything, so don't follow anything that I, I do. Um, you have learned to I be explain, honest. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I explain uh, sports this way. You know, it's part of our DNA, and I've written about this a um, couple of times in different uh, articles. It's part of our DNA. You can't escape sports. It doesn't matter whether it's a soft sport or a hard sport. You know, competitiveness, the uh, the exerciseness, whether you feel that's true or not, it's just part of being a human being. You know, when when you look at that, just take that inner inner DNA and make something of it, right? So when you're doing your exercise, whether it's healthy person doing it or an injured veteran doing it, find something that's consistent, right? Uh, to me, I remember running was something that I like to do, but my injuries just prevented me from doing that too much. So I picked up biking, you know, but then, you know, in the wintertime, it gets all yucky. Now I'm finding about other uh, biking methods to do in the winter. What I'm trying to get at is anything that you do that's going to... Uh, kind of take you away from this PTSD stigma mentality is good. And I, I don't care what it is. I would say stick and be a routine with it because you're going to shoot for that goal. Let's just say, for instance, a, a one-hour biking. If your routine's going to be before dinner, I'm always going to do one-hour biking, whether it's on a stationary bike or get a bike on a go on a trail, then you know you're going to be in a goal of, I'm going to finish work by 4 o'clock, get home, change, you know, do this with my daughter or my wife and stuff. But I'm going to get on that bike because you have an agenda. And the thing is, your body reacts to that because you're set schedule, you're moving, you're routine, uh, and you're focused. And then once you do the exercise that you choose to do, and it can be anything. It can be the bowling. It can be butterfly catching, whatever it is. You're actually set scheduled to do it. You're getting away from the stigma that PTSD controls you and you can't do anything. No, heck no. I can do something. And my goal is every day I'm going to be doing this. Would it be fair to say that these are addictions? And they're healthy addictions that can replace some of the, some of the more dangerous ones that we had. I mean, I walk every day and I, and I honestly believe I'm addicted to it. Uh, but in a, in a certain way, they're healthy addictions that, that you can, as you say, get in the habit, put them on a schedule, do them religiously or, it, without fail. I think they're more healthy. W would that be a way to look at it? Um, it's a good way of looking at it. I'll give you an example. Uh, and I think many vets could attest to this and, and many family members could do. You know, I used um, uh, alcohol. I mean, I'm not a drinker uh, at all by any means. But I used alcohol to go to sleep. I just didn't want to wake up with nightmares and things like that. So I drank heavily. Don't even know how to drink. All I know is, you know, you take this bottle and just drink half of it and then you'll pass out. Right? Um, so that was the routine. That was the addiction that I had in order to go to sleep so I can actually get up without any nightmares. and stuff. At least that was my belief. Uh, and I replaced that with coming home at night prior to going to bed. I'm actually, like, three hours before going to bed, I actually did the exercises, you know, whether it's biking or uh, any other calisthenics. All right? Got sweated up, do a hot shower, 
and then go to bed. So I replaced what I thought I needed to go to bed with something different, like something positive. Uh, and that turned into a routine. Now, transitioning from alcohol to do calisthenic, that was really difficult to do, all right? But you need support. And if you do it with your family member, uh, like my son did it with me, and that tremendously helped, you know? And then eventually it becomes, hey, instead of picking up the bottle, hey, hey son, you wanna do calisthenic with me? He may say no someday because he wants to play video game with his friends, but that's okay. I'm in the routine. I'm going to do it. You know? Um, so, yeah, addiction is great on that standpoint. Yeah, and what a, great, uh, what a great example of that, to include your family members in some form of the healthy transition for all of you together, rather than having you do it alone, have an, have an activity for the family to get involved in uh, that is healthy in sharing this uh, transition to civilian life. A, a great, great thought, Doc. Uh, and it could be a f- good friend, you know, if family is resistant or they're non-exercisers, you know, then a friend who can do it with you. Nowadays, it's actually much better because you can do it through Zoom. You don't even have to get together to do it. What an awesome time to get away from the stigma. Right. Hey, a, a couple, just a couple quick questions before we end up this wonderful conversation. Um, tell us about the the concept of being internalized when you come home, but now the, the value of the human spirit, your spirit being locked up, internalized when you came home, and what you see when you're helping these other veterans, what it is that you see in, in the human spirit that is such a joy for you when you're working with, uh, with either paralyzed veterans or veterans, in, actually anyone in the medical college where, where you're, uh, I believe, an associate professor. But, but seeing the value of what you can do for outside of your spirit, being connected to that higher human spirit. Yeah, um, I think we all need to believe in uh, something other than yourself. Uh, I think that's a key factor. And, uh, uh, you know, I can't tell you what that is, but find something that's outside of you. You know, again, don't be me, 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 I, I, I. Think about um, you, you, you. And that you could be your God, your religion, your friend, your family. Concentrate on that. Take yourself off of that. And remember that we are very resilient species, we really are. You know, we can be very self-destructive at the same time, but we're very resilient. When I look at all my patients, you know, some of these guys are high quadriplegics, uh, paraplegics, and um, yet, you know, it, it seems so impossible for them to move on with their life, but they do. Almost 100% of them do, and they live a healthy, awesome lives, if you think about it. So when I look at them, I like, oh, my God, my problem with PTSD is nothing compared to what they got going here. So they actually are the ones that I look forward to. Some, a lot of times when I'm really down and I don't know what to do, surprisingly, I don't know what entity makes that happen. One of my patients will call me and say, hey, doc, you know, I got this issue, that issue. What do you think I should do? You know, I want to get into this spiking or that bike. Should I spend $8,000 to get this? I'm like, are you crazy? You know, that kind of stuff, conversation, it gets me out of it. Um, it it's, it's one of those things that you have, you know, c- surround yourself with the right people uh, and cool people, and you become cool. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Lee, I want to thank you for coming on. Just give us, uh, the audience, one hopeful uh, idea of don't internalize this, go get help. Look for something. What w- have you got a resource in particular that you prefer? that you would uh, share with people? Yes. To me, I, I, I'm very fortunate to have um, my uh, fellow veterans. They're actually my patients that I'm very close with. Um, so this you know, doctor-patient relationship, I should be very clear, but some of these guys are such a good friends with me, even though they're my patients. Um, they're my reliance. I, I ended up I end up discussing things and talking to them quite a bit, even my personal things when we're together. And we are together a lot because we do adaptive sports together. I even play with them next to each other. Um, And in that sense, I know I have a place to fall on. And it's, it's these fellow veterans. And I think it's important. And, you know, these veterans have gone through and they've come out of the rut. They're no longer living the stigma. And those are the positive veterans. Um, and I'm not saying neglect the, um, the negative veterans, 
you know, once you surround yourself with the positive veterans, bring in the negative veterans as a group and help them out. Um, but that's my fallback, Mike. If something happens to me, I fall back to my fellow veterans. I think it's very wise advice. Dr. Lee, thank you so much for your service to the country. Thank you for all the work that uh, your daughter's kiss on the cheek has turned you around and, and uh, what your children are doing, because I believe that they anticipate going into medical careers. And thank you to your wife for, for um, sticking with you and, and uh, toughing it out with you. And certainly thank you for all that you're doing at the uh, Spinal Cord Injury Hospital at the VA Hospital in Milwaukee. Thank you for joining thank us. Thank you. Thank you, Mike, for your service as well. I appreciate that. So we are coming to the close of another educational, very educational segment of Stigma-Free Vet Zone, which is brought to you by the Charles E. Kubley Foundation. And for more resources on transition from military to civilian life for veterans and for family members, please uh, check out our website at orbanfoundationforveterans.org or just the, the letters OF, the number four, vets.org. And as usual, there's always folks available for you to talk to at the Veterans Crisis Line, and don't ever hesitate to call them. And that number is 1-800-273-8255, and then press the number one. Our sound engineers for today are Ben Slane and Mark Heleniak. And for co-host Bob Bach, I am Mike Orban, and thank you for spending your time with us. <laughs>